You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com So we're here with Professor David Nassau of CUNY. Um, he's written three acclaimed biographies, uh, one on uh, Andrew Carnegie, William Randolph Hearst, and of course, uh, Joe Kennedy. And he very graciously agreed to come on the program. My pleasure. I just wanted, if I could, I was going to try to be ambitious and try to get the highlights from all three of these books, and I made some notes. I just want to start with um, Andrew Carnegie. It was a great book, obviously. I, I've read your interviews that you've done and seen you on TV. I, of the three of them, he was probably, maybe you could argue, the most impressive because he came from such humble backgrounds. Would you agree with, with that? Yes, yes. All three of these people that I've had the, you know, the privilege to write biographies of were incredible, impressive individuals. I think Carnegie may have been, is in some ways my favorite, because he lived so many lives, because he was a citizen of the world in a very significant way, and because his dreams were even larger than his accomplishments. And I admire that and respect that. Could you please, he was a social Darwinist, as I understand it. Could you please explain what that is, Professor Nassau? Certainly. He believed, he was not a religious man, and he struggled as a young man and as an adult to try to figure out why he had been so successful, accomplished so much. He did not diminish his own talents, but nonetheless, his fortune and his successes, he thought, were outweighed his, his individual talents. He met Herbert Spencer and met with Herbert Spencer, and as a result of those meetings and those readings, he began to believe that there was a plan, not a God-given plan, but an evolutionary plan, an evolutionary progress, whereby human beings evolved. They got, as he would say, better and better. The evolution wasn't in a straight line. There were steps backward in this progress to civilization. But it was, on the whole, a forward progress. And that progress was fed and led by the fittest. Spencer had coined the term survival of the fittest to explain how things progress. And what Spencer said was that in every generation, in every era, there were a certain number of men, and he talked only of men, who fit the requirements of that era. In the era of what he called barbarism, when peasants and ordinary people needed the protection of armies, the captains of the military were the fittest, 
and they protected and protected prosperity for ordinary people. All right. And in in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, it was the captains of industry, Carnegie among them. Now he advanced progress. He was working. One of the ways, obviously, he got wealthy. He was working and sort of doing side deals for as a front man for the people that ran the railroad. Like, for example, I think they were, he was buying bridges, iron bridges, because they knew the price of iron was going to go up. Right. So he was right. sort of. I mean, that wasn't was that considered unethical at the time, or just sort of um, frowned upon, or what? did it break a law? Do you think those? It was, not, Ill, it was, it was not necessarily illegal. Um, it wasn't illegal. And these kinds of corrupt deals, uh, you know, in many ways defined rough and tumble early American capitalism. And Carnegie took advantage of it. Carnegie uh, worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad. The Pennsylvania Railroad needed bridges. So the president, the vice president, and Carnegie formed a company, a separate company. The Pennsylvania Railroad then gave it money to build bridges to this separate company. And the president, the vice president, and Carnegie profited enormously because they supplied the bridges and the iron for those bridges to the Pennsylvania Railroad under very lucrative contracts. Got it. One of the things that um, I know you discovered Andrew Carnegie's prenup, but, but before that, you said he decided when he was in his 30s to give away all his money. And you said, ironically, that made him more ruthless because he, I guess he figured if he was doing this in the service of good, he could be even more ruthless to sort of better that good. Exactly. You, you picked out what I think is one of the more astounding elements in the Andrew Carnegie story. Uh, previous biographers and historians have believed that once he became a philanthropist, he became a gentler, kinder, kinder less exploitive employer. But the opposite was the case. He was going to sacrifice the men who worked in his plants, the working people of Pittsburgh, in order to amass a fortune, which then he would give away to the community of Pittsburgh and other communities throughout the United States and Europe. So he drove his men even harder raise more profits so that he would have more to give away. Got it. And one of the things you discuss, obviously, is, is an infamous time in American history, the, the Homestead uh, situation where there was a strike at one of Carnegie's steel mills. The Pinkerton were called in. I think these basically thuggish people. And uh, he was in Scotland, and Frick was dealing with it as number two. But you basically write that he knew exactly what was going on. It was a cable station 20 miles from his home in Scotland. So he had sort of plausible deniability. But in reality, and he, I think in his memoirs, he also put a spin on it as well, but in reality, I think you were disappointed to learn that he was, in fact, responsible for Homestead. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. He knew that he thought he could have handled it with less bloodshed than his lieutenant, Henry Frick. But nonetheless, he knew that Frick, he had left Frick in charge to break the Union by whatever means necessary. So he had blood on his hands. He was not an innocent uh, man in the deaths and the crimes that were committed during that strike. It was a dirty, nasty strike. And he knew what was going to happen. 
what was interesting too is I think you, I believe you discovered the prenup with his wife. He obviously gets married late, and the prenup was basically written before Homestead. And she acknowledges, as I understand it, in that prenup that he was planning to give away all of his money even before the Homestead. So it wasn't some guilt because of what happened that made him do this. It was just his plan from the beginning. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Again, you you picked up an element of the book in the life that I thought was very important. Yeah, he, he did not give away his money because he wanted the world to love him and to forgive him for, for Homestead. He decided way before that he was going to give away his money. And he was going to give it away not as a gift, but because he believed in his social Darwinist uh, leanings led him in this direction. He believed that he had earned this money as a trustee for the larger community and that it was that larger community that deserved to get that money back. So he was giving it back to those who he believed had earned it with him and that's the larger community. And then I think, as you said, too, another time, that sort of is like what Buffett believes as well, right? And you believe that people don't make their money in a vacuum. It's part of a larger society, I believe, is your view, too. Yeah, well, Warren Buffett has said that. Warren Buffett has said, um, he said, look, I have one talent. He said, I'm good at picking companies that are underpriced and that I think have a great potential. He said, if I were born anywhere else in the world at any other time, he said that talent <laughs> would not have stood me well. He said, but I'm a creature of luck. And I'm a creature of, you know, American capitalism at this moment in time. He said, and, you know, I can't simply say that all this money has come to me because I deserve it. Uh, and I'm going to give it back. And Professor Nelson, one of the things also that I found so interesting that I did not know is his efforts to stop basically World War One? He's sort of the, the pre-Henry Kissinger of his day of shuttling back and forth. That was, could you just discuss that a little bit too and, and the efforts that he made to stop the war? Well, he was convinced, he, he knew war was coming because he was, he traveled back and forth to Europe every summer. He spent half his year in Scotland, half his life in Scotland after his retirement. And, and it was his sense that the uh, armed battle, the battle over battleships, dreadnoughts as they were called, between England and Germany had to end badly. He saw war coming and he tried to do everything he possibly could to stop it. He formed committees, uh, the endowment for peace was one of them. He uh, had lectures, he had conferences, he wrote books and pamphlets. He lobbied his Republican friends in the White House and in Congress and his friends in the English government, the German government. His argument was that this is no longer the age of barbarism. This is the age of civilization. And we should no longer settle international disputes on a battlefield. We should settle them in a conference room. And he built the state palace of peace where he hoped international disputes would be arbitrated peaceably. Got it. Yeah, it's, it's a, um, 
Also, um, Carnegie really did give away all of his money. I mean, almost what ninety-five percent of his wealth by the time he was he was dead. Is that something right. like that? He was defeated by compound interest. He <laughs> thought he was going to be able to give it all away, but his he had sold his company to J.P. Morgan and received in return gold bonds that paid five percent interest in gold. So he kept making more money. Um, and in the end, Bolton realized he wasn't going to be able to give it all away. So he set up the Carnegie Corporation of New York, which continues in business to this day. But yes, he did give, tried to give away 100%, probably gave away 90 to 95%. Yes, what was the largest fortune in the world at the Yes, it's, it, 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 as a child, I went to the Cooper Hewitt a lot on 91st Street, so it was interesting to yeah. read your book. And I, I should also mention, this was, your book was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Biography, so congratulations for that. And I just want to now turn to um, another book you wrote, um, the William Randolph Hearst book, The Chief, which was also a winner of the Bancroft um, Prize in American History, and also the uh, Lucas Book Prize um, as well. Um, he was an interesting person because a lot of people, when they think of William Randolph Hearst, they obviously, as I did, they think of the movie Citizen Kane and sort of a dark image. But um, that's, you sort of changed that with your book. And first of all, how did you get the Hearst family to open up their archives to you, Mr. Vassar? Uh, yeah, it wasn't easy. Let me tell you that. It wasn't easy. They are, the Hearst family really doesn't own uh, most of the material that's owned by the Hearst Corporation. Okay. William Randolph Hearst left. Is uh, his assets, most of it, to the corporation. So I had to spend a lot of time, and I had to convince the, the individuals there at the top, including Frank Benick, who was the uh, CEO at the time, that I was a serious historian, that I was out to tell the story. And while I was not going to whitewash Mr. Hearst, I was not going to look for spectacular details that would make him the devil. Um, it was easy to do that with Hearst. Very easy. I mean, he was a, you know, he was a bigamist. Um, he didn't officially marry Marion Davies, but he lived with her in an unmarried state for many years. His politics were rather extreme. First as a leftist, then as a virulent, virulent opponent of the New Deal and of Franklin Roosevelt and of the entry of the United States into World War II. Yes, I um, He was not a very good father. Uh, he was a remarkable businessman. And a remarkable newspaper man. It, and I think when the Hearst Corporation discovered I was for real as a historian, uh, they gave me access to everything I needed. It's sort of, they gave him the, um, his parents, his father was wealthy, and they gave him sort of the examiner, his first paper, to sort of get him out of a relationship with a girl, kind of like a bribe. Right. And so that's, so he's kind of like Rupert Murdoch. I mean, I think Murdoch was given one or two papers by his father. Hearst is exactly. given this. And, and then um, he, he obviously builds it up and he buys the New York Law Journal, uh, sorry, the New York Journal, and he gets a loan from his mother, something like $150,000 or something to buy that. Um, yeah. And he's quite dependent upon his mother for most of his life, kind of like FDR, I believe, who's dependent upon his mother financially, too. Right, right. No, um, Hearst was a 
you know, was a wild child. Uh, he was a spoiled young man. Uh, he never showed any particular talent in any direction. His father, who was a politician, bought a newspaper, which is what politicians did in that period, to get his views across and to promote his candidacy. And Hearst decided he wanted to run a newspaper. No, no one, no one took him seriously. <laughs> they didn't take him seriously in San Francisco where he started. He certainly didn't take him seriously in New York. But he knew what he was doing. And he worked long, 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 hard hours, hired the best people he could find. He spent a fortune on his mother's money, his family money, and his own money. And he built not only the largest newspaper empire, but the largest media empire uh, the first half of the 20th century. I think you're right. He was only um, really in control of his own financial destiny for something like 20 of his 88 years because obviously the mother had so much control. You, you also mentioned he was more courteous to his employees. Like there was a thing with um, the Spanish-American War. The main is blown up and the picture is not big enough. He says, please make this picture a little bit bigger. So the, the image of him with this tyrant was really, he was more human and nicer. He wrote poetry to his mistress and a different person than what come across uh, generally. Yeah, and, and, and in the... You know, the, the Simpson Cain story um, is, you know, it's fiction. And it was, it was based on the screenplay uh, that was in large part fictional. And the portrait of Simpson Cain as this dark, stormy man all alone in this huge mansion. It's just not correct. First, love party, love gaiety. Uh, his uh, joy was building San Simeon and entertaining there. This was a man who knew how to have fun. <laughs> yes, and I think you, you said before you don't want to spend so much time writing a biography on someone who's not interesting to you, doesn't just tell good jokes or have fun. You, you like having exactly. an interesting subject because you spend so much of your. What do these books take? Like six years each, something like that, to write? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They take about six, you know, five to six years. Um, and you want, you know, you, you want to be surprised. Uh, you, don't, you don't want to, you want multi dimensional characters. You want people who are in relationships and have friends and have family and have businesses and have dreams. And I've been fortunate that the three people I've written biographies of fit that down. He was also how he had a very forward thinking. Like when someone would write a story, he would insist upon the film rights. So he seemed to be always a forward thinking person, Hearst. He could be, you know, in, in, this, in this way, he, he, Murdoch is much like him. Because he understood right away that news can be uh, over many different uh, platforms. It doesn't have to appear just in a newspaper. There are newsreels, there's radio, there's film, there are magazines. And he went into all of these different uh, media. He, he was a media mogul. Yes, and if I could just, one of the things I found fascinating is the 1932 convention. I mean, you could argue that Hearst 
made FDR our president. Could you just explain how, the role that Joe Kennedy played to sort of convince Hearst to then back FDR? And I was fascinated that it was Joe Kennedy, of all people, who pops up in this in this 1932 important convention. I know. Huh. I know. Well, um, Hearst was extraordinarily influential. Hearst would have liked to be president, but because of Marion Davies and numerous indiscretions as a child, that was never going to happen. Also because he had a terrible speaking voice. He had a high-pitched speaking voice that didn't carry, and he couldn't campaign. Terrible campaigner. But he exerted enormous influence over California delegation, the New York delegation, and the Texas delegation in the... Uh, no one wanted... He had the major newspaper outlets in these three states and other states, and no politician wanted to be on his bad side. Um, he originally supported John Nance Garner of Texas for the nomination. He didn't like Roosevelt because he thought Roosevelt was too much of a one-worlder, that Roosevelt was not an American firster, that Roosevelt you know, believed in world banks and nations and that kind of stuff. So he was against Roosevelt in the beginning. But when it became clear that John Nance Garner was not going to win, uh, it was time to get in touch with him in the middle of the convention. And the man who knew him best was Joe Kennedy. Why Joe Kennedy? Because Kennedy and Hearst had been in the movie business. And Kennedy greatly admired Hearst. I think he wanted to be like Christ. He would have loved to have, I think, left his wife or had a mistress and a wife at the same time, openly, <laughs> as Hearst did. Um, and he enjoyed Hearst. He enjoyed visiting there. And I think Hearst liked him as well. So mm. from the Roosevelt headquarters at the convention in Chicago, he picked up the phone, first answered his call. He didn't answer any other calls from the Roosevelt camp. And Kennedy said, look, Roosevelt's probably going to win anyway, but it will be much easier for the Democrats and much easier to defeat Hoover um, with your support. And he convinced, and he said, Roosevelt's the best man for the job. You know, we've got to save capitalism. And Roosevelt can do this. And he convinced Hearst. And Hearst let his delegates in California and Texas go. And Roosevelt on the next ballot went over the top. I think you said in a, in a different form. I remember you speaking about that. It's hard for us to understand today what the Great Depression was like because we complain about 8 or 9 or 10% unemployment. And of course, there it was 25% of the court. And both Hearst and Kennedy were very scared of what could happen if we didn't have the right leadership. I think you, you discussed that as well. Um, oh, absolutely. Kennedy, Kennedy in particular. Kennedy had made a fortune by 1932. He wanted to pass on that fortune to his children. And he had made that fortune in large part so that <laughs> his children wouldn't have to work. So they could go into public service. And he hoped into politics. Um, the Depression frightened him, as it should have. Because in Depression circumstances, both Germany and Italy had abandoned democracy for fascism. 
Right. And, and Kennedy believed that without capitalism, there could be no democracy. If and I, it was for that reason that he supported Roosevelt as the best person to get us out of the Depression. If I could just uh, one more thing on Hirsch, so interesting. I mean, and you talk about journalistic ethics. I mean, he was basically hired Hitler and Mussolini, which I didn't know, and that basically Mussolini, right, was was quite boring. Mussolini bought his country house through basically the auspices of Hirsch's money. Hitler would miss deadlines, deadlines, and basically be the kind of lazy artist type person that we know him to be. But that was fast. Okay. That was fascinating. That a person like that, a private American businessman. And that, those weren't the only leaders. He had a leader of Argentina on his payroll, Mexico. I mean, it's just, un, it's almost unbelievable that someone could, could be basically paying these foreign leaders. I know it's supposedly to write a column, but I just don't think that would, hopefully that wouldn't fly today. No. But he wanted the American people to know, to hear from these people. Right. He sort of was, you know, it's his job in the Sunday papers to present as many uh, viewpoints as possible, and it was there was also a certain cachet in being able to employ leaders of foreign nations, uh, which he did. Hitler was a terrible columnist. Uh, <laughs> Mussolini had been a journalist, but you know he was almost as bad. These two guys didn't work out. I wonder Roosevelt was better. He worked for him too. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's quite something. Well, if I could just turn out to um, Joe Kennedy, President Russell, and just. Once again, uh, I think it was Ted Kennedy. Well, first it was Ted Kennedy's sister who, who approached you, then Ted Kennedy who really convinced you to write this book, and you made it clear that you wanted to write a fair, objective book. It wasn't going to be a whitewash of Joe Kennedy. And is, is that fair to say? Yeah, and, and my conditions were that the family would grant me access to all the papers that they held and that they had closed to other researchers, number one, and number two, that they would censor nothing, and they would in fact see nothing until the book was published. And it took a year and a half before they agreed to my requirement. But Ted in particular understood that his father was perceived as an anti-Semitic, pro-Nazi, womanizing monster and that any story told by a historian uh, was going to be better than this slanted story that had been used to discredit not only Joe Kennedy, but had been used to discredit all the Kennedys as politicians. Right. And basically, you talk about Kennedy's... Um early life, and he obviously was smart, he went to Harvard, and his father was sort of a local, important Catholic political leader, but they didn't have much control in Boston itself, it just sort of their enclave, their Catholic enclave. And when he graduates from Harvard, he couldn't get a job, he becomes a bank examiner, and then later his father appoints him a bank they control, I think at age 25? Yeah, yeah. He, he stayed, it's a tiny little bank in East Boston, and under siege by a large bank that wants to take it over. And Joe Kennedy uh, retires from being a, you know, he's no longer a bank examiner, but he knows how the banking world works. And he is able to raise the money, rescue this little bank, and then become its president at age 25. Uh, he had remarkable talents. 
he was an extraordinary businessman, and he was the most charming man in the room. He could work a room like no one else. Uh, and it didn't matter who was in that room, whether it was sports figures, uh, movie stars, politicians, uh, great men of letters. He was extraordinary. He would turn on that charm, and no one could resist. Of the three of them, um, uh, Carnegie, Hearst, and Joe Kennedy, if you had had lunch with one of them, would you have picked Joe Kennedy for that reason? Because he was sort of, even though he privately could have, you know, anti-Semitic views and, and not, but, but just as far as like when he tried to be charming, was he, was he the most charming of the three, the most fun to be, to be with? Probably, but he would have had no reason to be charming with me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Carnegie, Carnegie would have. <laughs> Carnegie just loved to talk and loved to be with people. And I think Carnegie would have told stories, would have, I think Joe Kennedy would have smiled and been charming and then, you know, in five minutes realizing I could do nothing for him, you know, have left the room. Got it. Um, just on the subject of, of um, Catholics and Jews, and one of the things you, you say is kind of interesting, you're like, America was actually more divided at that time than it is today, which in a way is kind of a... Uh, a nice thought that we're actually more united than we were and with all the problems that we have in the country today it's better than it was 50 or 60 or 70 years ago and you mentioned that he goes to the, basically the heads of the studios in Hollywood and says you need me as a Catholic as a Christian to sell your mostly Jewish controlled studios to the wider audience you need me to sort yeah. of help help you and that's a, an interesting point that he makes uh, he's privately somewhat anti-Semitic but he has a lot of Jewish friends and of course he does business with a lot of Jews oh absolutely absolutely and you know, his anti-Semitism, the question is not was Joe Kennedy an anti-Semite, but what kind of an anti-Semite was he? Right. In the America of the 30s and the 40s, uh, changes after World War II, um, but up until that point, uh, this was a nation of tribes, and you distrusted everybody who was not a member of your tribe. And the anti-Catholic feeling in this country was extraordinary. We forget. I, mean, I talk about it in my book, and it really destroyed Joe Kennedy that his son, in 1960, got under 50% of the votes for president, while, as, while the Democratic candidates for the House and the Senate got almost 55% of the votes. So that meant that 5% of the people who voted for Democrats in their local districts wouldn't vote for Joe Kennedy, for Jack Kennedy as president. And the only reason, the only answer that the political pundits and the professors came up with was that he was Catholic. Right. And there were a large number of Americans who would not vote for a Catholic. One of the things we have to thank Joe Jack Kennedy for is that Jack Kennedy, in his thousand days of being a president, totally destroyed the notion that Catholics could not be good Americans. Right, exactly. And one of the things I think, one of the ways, ironically, Joe Kennedy later becomes head of the SEC for FDR. He has another position, then later, uh, of course, ambassador to England. But as SEC head, he sort of he sort of knows the tricks of the trade, and he was doing a lot of stock manipulation and then selling short under the depression. 
didn't you find some of those records and you could sort of see the front people he was using and how he actually made his money? Absolutely. The family opened up to me uh, his financial records. And for years and years and years, he's been accused of being a bootlegger because no one could figure out how he made so much money so fast. Right. Well, he made that money as a stock manipulator. He knew all the tricks of the trade. And when he went and became FDR's first chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, he outlawed all of the tricks that had made him a multimillionaire uh, because he knew that although it had benefited his family during the 20s, the Depression had changed everything. Right. And in order to get this country back on its feet, ordinary people had to trust Wall Street, trust the stock market, and begin to invest again. And in order to do that, the rules had to be changed. And he changed those rules. What I find absolutely remarkable is the ways in which, as a public servant, Joe Kennedy's responsibility was to the public, not to his family, and not to his fortune. And he could very well have preserved rules that he could have manipulated to make more money, but he didn't do that. And when he left the SEC, he also stopped investing and making his money in the stock market. Right. He went into real estate. Right. Instead. Like, a, like the March, March of yeah. Chicago, that big building. What I found so, and to me, the bootlegging thing is so interesting because I had always thought, I read before you were taught, you just sort of known that the Kennedys made their money as a bootlegger. And you were like, where did this come from? It was like, you know, Al Capone's uh, piano tutor and people like that. I mean, it was so interesting to just totally discredit something that I had accepted as a, as a fact, too. You know, up until the, um, the, these rumors really didn't start to surface and, and take on weight until Jack Kennedy entered politics. And one of the ways to get at Jack Kennedy, who was an enormously attractive candidate and a war hero and a Harvard-educated man, one of the ways to get at Jack Kennedy was through his father. Right, right. So all sorts of rumors were passed into the media, uh, really false news. Uh, and, you know, I tracked down, look, nothing would have made me happier as an author than to have found out he was a bootlegger. Sure. A bootlegger. Sure. That would have allowed me to introduce all sorts of colorful characters and colorful, colorful chapters into my book. But he wasn't. <laughs> right. And there was absolutely no evidence of any sort that he was. Plus, Joe Kennedy wanted very much to be admired and respected as an American. And he knew how close he could get to breaking the law without breaking it. You know? He wanted the best for his family, and he was not going to play with you know, gangsters and criminals and illegalities because that would have made it much more difficult for his family. Right. Uh, uh, 
Another, just talk, talk about journalistic ethics. I'll go, I want to go to the ambassador of England, but just one thing on the thing. He would pay someone like Arthur Crock of the New York Times to write a speech. He would then deliver the speech, and then Crock would say, what a fantastic speech it was. I mean, and hopefully we've advanced a little bit from those times as well. General- Isn't that an amazing story? Yes, it is. One of the things that I, I, I was surprised that, I mean, you caught it right away, but I was very surprised that more reviewers, especially reviewers from the New York Times, didn't pick up that story. I mean, it's a scandal. The, and, and everybody in Washington knew it. Right. Everybody knew that Kroc, who was the head of the Washington Bureau, was on the Kennedy payroll. And yet nobody did anything about it. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So if I could just turn you then, so it becomes uh, Ambassador to England. Uh, England or it, he's the first Catholic appointed uh, by the United States Ambassador to England. And obviously that goes a long way towards uh, destroying Joe Kennedy. At least it, it, he, he tries to appease. He, want, he thinks England cannot survive a fight with Hitler. He wants, he's a, a perennial appeaser. And that just turns up, it just hurts his reputation tremendously, uh, doesn't it? That service. Right. It, yeah, it destroys his reputation. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we got to remember is that Hearst was not pro-Nazi. He was not a lover of Adolf Hitler and National Socialism. But he believed that Hitler and the Nazis were just so powerful that they would defeat Great Britain in the war. If the Americans entered the war, Hitler would ultimately be defeated, but he thought wrongly that the American economy would be destroyed, trade would be stopped, and we'd go right back into depression. Right. He also believed that during war, democracy suffers, and he's right. During war, the president becomes commander-in-chief and has to do all sorts of things that he does not do and should not do during peacetime. And democracy suffers. Right, like the powers that Bush had during the Iraq war. Exactly, exactly. And he believed that it was in the best interest of this country to do whatever it could to stay out of war. And if that meant appeasing Hitler, so be it. Now again, he was wrong. He believed Hitler was you know, a little bit eccentric, but could be reasoned with. Right. Boy, was he wrong. <laughs> yes, he, he was. So so then um, this sort of goes to a, a series of just terrible things. I mean, obviously, his daughter, Rosemary, and the best advice, he gave her a lobotomy, which gives her a sort of a functioning of a, of a child. His, his eldest son, Joe Kennedy, who was supposed to be the president, uh, the future politician, not Jack, who was weak and sickly, gets killed in a, in a raid that's just a, really of no importance as the war is almost... At, one essentially at the end, and then of course uh, Jack and then Bobby get killed. I mean, it's just unbelievable the um, the highs and the lows of the Kennedys. What you outline here? It is, it is, and I've been asked many times if there's a Kennedy curse, and I don't think there's any kind of supernatural Kennedy curse. But I, I think what happens is that the, the Kennedy children grow up feeling that they're an elite, they're special. Nobody's gonna they take risks that other people can't take. And and they can take those risks. You know, they, they die. Um, it is I don't know any family that has gone through this crisis. 
Yeah, and I forgot to mention the daughter, Kit, whose favorite uh, daughter was killed in a plane crash in England. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, Rose Kennedy once said to Ted, you know, I'm thankful I had so many children. Otherwise, I'd be left with nothing. Speaking of, of Rose Kennedy, you sort of find her a bit hard to understand, don't you? I mean, but she most, most of her time shopping, vacationing, going to the church, and he sort of accepted Joe's life as long as she wasn't really embarrassed, right? But, but they didn't really seem that much of a close relationship, do, do you think? No, I don't think they did, until he got sick after his stroke. And very early in the marriage, they had a close relationship. But no, I mean, her sense growing up, her father had, Rose's father had had an affair with Toodles, a um, cigarette girl, um, you know, nightclub. Uh, Rose grew up believing that what you want in a husband is a good provider who's not going to embarrass you. Right. And as long as Joe provided her and her family with everything it needed for and didn't publicly embarrass her, well, that was okay. Right. And in, 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 in sort of a, after you finish this book, the Kennedy family did not reach out to you that much. Is that correct? You didn't really hear from Eunice Schreiber and, and people well, like... Eunice was the only one who was alive at the end um, was Jean. Jean, yeah. sorry. Yeah, Jean Kennedy Smith. And she came to a couple of speaking engagements I had and was, was friendly, but disputed parts of the book which I had been warned she would. She didn't like the fact that I talked about her father's affairs and womanizing. And there were some other issues. But with the exception of Jean Kennedy Smith, the family um, has been very supportive. Ethel Kennedy loved the book. Um, I talked to several of Bobby's children Ted's children and the Shriver children, and they all think the book is terrific. Right. So the cousins have learned something about their father, about their grandfather, and you know, have been very supportive. By the I think, Professor Nelson, you you quote um, the great Arthur Fletcher in one of your talks. You said that he said that you uh, rewrite history, not write it. What does that mean to you when someone says something like that? That, that, yeah, um, 20 years from now, someone is going to write another book about Joe Kennedy and Hearst and Carnegie, and they're going to write from another perspective, Okay. and they're going to write with new materials, and they're going to take up where I left off and do a better job for 2030 or 2040. Um, there is no definitive history. Because time changes, and the nation changes, and the questions we ask of the past change. Well, I think if you're going to be a good historian, you've got to be you got to be both confident and humble. Okay. That's the best you can do when you're writing the book, but realize that your story is not the entire truth. That there is no entire truth. Only if there's a God above looking down on us, 
Right. He has that truth. He or she has that truth. But what those of us work in the trenches as historians day by day, we have a limited view of that truth. Do you have a next book, Professor Castle, that you're working on or any uh, big, big uh, goal? I'm playing, yeah, I'm working on a book about the displaced persons, not a biography, about the last million refugees who were left in Germany when the war is over and what happens to them. Okay. Well, Professor Nassau, thank you so much for coming on the program today. It's been very interesting and informative, and I very much appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank have a good you. day. Thank you. Bye-bye.